This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me in the studio to talk about the federal election campaign and federal politics in general. Then, David Walker, Emeritus Professor at Deakin University and Honorary Professorial Fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, Stranded Nation, White Australia in an Asian Region. And then finally, Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita joined me in the studio to talk about the key policy differences of the major parties on social security, employment and taxation. Welcome in the studio, Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda and he's joining me to discuss federal politics and the last week of the federal election campaign. Good morning, Amy. Good How are morning. You? I'm doing all right, just kind of limping over the finish line a little bit. Oh, like us all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like both major parties, Literally, I think. yeah, exactly. <laughs> they are. It, it's getting pretty desperate, though, Ben. There's a oh, lot yeah. of desperation in the air, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, there's some dirty tricks starting to be revealed and some crazy stuff starting to go on, and it's only Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. it's very concerning. Yeah. Thank God there is an election um, advertising blackout, at least. Yes, I and the voters of Australia thank the Electoral Commission for that particular blackout. It's one of the best things about it. It's Although like you get... um, it doesn't apply to digital advertising, so expect a deluge of Facebook posts and so on and so Great. forth. Right. So yes. everyone just, you know, steer clear. Yes, I think if you could go into hiding or lockdown or get onto a beach in somewhere in yep. North Queensland... Now's the time for your digital detox. If you were holding on to doing it at some point in the year, do it now. I think so. I wish I could. Same. Yeah. (laughs) We've probably both been on Twitter all weekend, have we, Ben? Um, Well, no, I went out and did some things in the real world. I went to the ALP Cultural Policy Launch at the ESPY and caught Bill Shorten and Tony Burke uh, announcing Labor's arts policy. How did that go? Yeah, a very, very positive, a lot of love in the air there. Um, Labor announced pretty strong policy, actually, so about $319 million that they're committing to arts and culture. Uh, the coalition has no cultural policy at all. Hilarious, uh, yeah. but not. Well, Ben, there are a lot of announcements. Some uh, relating to that was the funding for the ABC and SBS, and they've Labor have said that they will restore the cuts, the, restore the funding that had occurred from cuts under Tony Abbott's government and subsequent governments who have year on year kept cutting money from the ABC's budget. And they've also committed an additional amount of funds for things like music and drama and children's television and news. So that's also a good sign, isn't it? Yeah, all up. I make it about $120 million committed to the ABC by the government, about $80 million to make up for the coalition cuts and then an extra $40 million for Australian content and there's also an extra $20 million for SBS. Um, it actually was a really positive labour policy in culture. Mm. Um, there's a commitment to create a new national First Nations theatre company, which I think is That's really fantastic. positive. Um, there's a whole bunch of extra money for the Australia Council for the Arts. Um, there's a big music policy. Um, there's $25 million to revive the Australian Interactive Games Fund that was killed off by Tony Abbott. Hmm. Um, there's some funding for regional arts and multicultural festivals. Yeah, it was pretty good 
pretty good policy, I thought. Seems pretty balanced. Uh, I mean, there's a few things that it didn't uh, it, it ignored or that it didn't go to. Mm-hmm. So the, probably the really big one was what to do about the big technology platforms and how they're changing culture. So there, there was no kind of policy around would they impose a local content quota on the big tech platforms mm. to force them to actually carry Australian content. Um, so that's something that the industry had wanted but they haven't got. But um, there's certainly talk that that will happen further into a shortened government. Yeah, well, perhaps, yeah, they're waiting, biding their time. Given they have so many policies, in stark, stark contrast to the coalition who really has a couple of you know, fully fleshed policies and the rest are just kind of slogans. It is a remarkable contrast between the major parties. I mean, Labor's got more than 100 fully costed, extremely detailed policies on its website. So many policies, in fact, that if you go to their website, it's quite bewildering. Yeah. And I think it it has actually been a a problem for Labor cutting through because of the sheer number of policies they've got out there. Uh, In contrast, the coalition uh, really is just promising lower taxes and to keep Labor out. Um, although there was a, a kind of hastily conceived policy announced on Sunday at the Liberal Party launch at the Melbourne Convention Centre mm. where the government's unveiled a new first homeowners guarantee which would supposedly allow uh, uh, first home buyers to buy houses with as little as a 5% deposit with the government guaranteeing the remainder of the 15% to get you up to your 20% deposit. So um, economists have been looking over that policy over the last couple of days to see what that means and how that might work. Yes, well, there's a bit of scepticism about it. Um, some people have said that it might um, increase house prices. Others have said it might mean that people who actually can't afford to continue a mortgage might end up defaulting eventually on a loan because they couldn't stump up the 20% in the first place. Uh, there's a lot of kind of criticisms around it. Um, it has, as the Coalition have said, been instituted in differing um, ways in Western Australia and New Zealand. So the, this is a concept that's happened before it's a policy that does work but as we know it depends all on the context of the economy that you're working in and how the property sector is going and a lot of people um, are thinking that this isn't really going to make enough of a difference for young people particularly first home buyers in the age bracket that they're targeting which they've said is the ages of 25 to 34. Yeah, well, I think that the big thing to note is that it's capped at, I believe, 10,000 places a year. So it can only help a small number of first-home buyers. So that's the first thing to note. The other big thing I'd, I'd point out about it is it won't build any houses. Okay, so that, that that's the main issue that we have in housing in Australia is that we don't have enough affordable houses. We do need more housing supply and we need more housing supply into the indefinite future because the population is growing. So it doesn't address that problem at all. And where it allows um, people who can not at the moment get a deposit together to buy a house, then it will be inflationary, I think. There's no doubt about it. I mean, mm. uh, that's been the effect of all the first homeowners' grants over the years has been to bid up the the price of of housing so uh, to the degree that it works at all it's going to work to increase house prices now of course at the moment house prices are falling particularly in Sydney and Melbourne so uh, if it puts a floor under that and allows house prices to stabilize well that's good news for people who own houses um, but it's not good news for people who are locked out of their housing market and who really need houses to become more affordable not less affordable so I think it just highlights 
highlights the imbalance in Australia's housing market and, and really the lack of any kind of proper housing policy from either of the major parties in this election. Yes, and it seems like um, it was a little bit half-baked in the sense that uh, we've since discovered that there was no modelling done on their policy. It wasn't... Um, cabinet wasn't consulted and apparently some Cabinet ministers heard it first for the first time at the Liberal launch on Sunday. So there's a little bit of... Um, no, Saturday, sorry. So there's a bit of controversy around uh, why they even came up with such a last-ditch attempt. A lot of people are saying maybe it's because they're um, noticing that their youth vote is particularly down, which is hardly surprising given that climate change is a massive issue among other things like inter intergenerational inequality. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think the coalition has allowed their message to become narrowed down to a defence of privilege and wealth. And that's particularly the case with the franking rebates we've talked about on the show over the weeks. You know, with that going into that policy, what the coalition has done by backing that policy so strongly is signal to a whole bunch of people, you know, younger Australians and middle-aged Australians, uh, that the, the government basically supports people getting free money for the government in order just because they own shares, all right? Now, so for people who are struggling to buy a house, that's that seems pretty outrageous. So, I think the government is in trouble with working families and with particularly middle-class Australians, and, and that that surely shows through in the weakness in the in the polls for the government across a number of seats and states. And so, yeah, they've pulled this one out of their back pocket to try and shore up their position with that demographic. Um, whether it works or not, uh, time will tell, I suppose. Labor immediately matched the policy, mm. which I think uh, surprised a few people and kind of... Uh, I think surprised me actually because Labor's economic policies have been fairly deliberate mm, and fairly careful through. and well yep. thought through in this campaign so far. But this one, they just pulled the trigger straight away and said, "Yeah, we'll match it." So um, no matter who wins, there'll be this first homeowners guarantee come in. Um, so you know, it is good news for those people who are just on the borderline of not quite getting a, a full deposit mm. together to try and buy a house. It might help those people. But I don't see what it can do for people who rent and I don't see what it can do for all of the other people in our society who aren't looking to buy a house, you know, and, and I think that's the weakness of the policy. It doesn't build houses. No, it doesn't. And um, we've just heard this morning Matisse Corman uh, come out on ABC's RN Breakfast and was talking about this policy, um, but particularly... The, the thing that I've picked up and noticed when these uh, ministers from the coalition government go on radio is that they deflect criticisms of their own policies and then they go straight on to attacking Labor. And when an interviewer um, is trying to get to the bottom of their policy and then, um, you know, Matthias Corman says things like uh, Labor is looking to abolish negative gearing, the interviewer doesn't counter what they're saying. They tr keep trying to go back to the coalition's policy. So there's a real issue here when you're focusing on um, other people's policies to get interviewers to actually, like, kind of quash misinformation. Like, I don't understand how an interviewer could let that slide because Labor is not abolishing negative gearing. They're 
not even close to getting rid of it. They're grandfathering the whole um, change. And even for first home buyers who are buying or any home buyer who's buying a brand new property, negative gearing can still be used. Yeah, that's right, Amy. Well, I think it just shows how difficult it is for the media to hold politicians to account when they are determined to misrepresent and to lie. And that's been the coalition's approach, particularly on Labor's economic policies throughout this entire campaign. It's to Mm -hmm. run negative, to accuse Labor of introducing a retiree tax, whatever that is. Of course, they're not. doesn't exist. And to say the things like, yeah, they're abolishing negative gearing. Of course, they're not. Uh, And uh, you could go through some of the accusations the coalition has levied on Labor uh, over the weeks. I mean, some of them are are frankly ridiculous. But um, Death tax, which still doesn't die. (laughs) Yes, the death tax. Well, you know, as I think I've said, you know, I actually supported inheritance tax in this country. And, um, you know, I think... It shows that the coalition is desperate and if we turn to some of the recent poll figures that are out over the weekend, Mm -hmm. we can see why. It's because uh, the polls aren't moving, you know, the coalition's not closing the gap, it's not narrowing. Uh, we're still at 51-49 and Labor's still in an election winning lead so a whole bunch of people have voted already, maybe yes. 2 million I think of over now, over 2 million people yep. have already voted, that does not all go well for the sitting government that's behind so I, I think it's going to be a state by state and even a seat by seat election on Saturday night we're going to see some wild results in a bunch of different seats I think and it could be quite an interesting night some people are going to get up that we didn't expect and I think some people are going to lose that will be a real shock. Mm. And, well, particularly Victoria, the news poll figures are damning and Labor has gone ahead a lot in terms of their primary vote and that's actually where the Coalition is performing the worst by far is in Victoria. So we're seeing Scott Morrison even today coming down to Geelong, to the seat of Corangamite, to announce that uh, Geelong will now be building tanks. Oh, right, tanks. Yes. Well, there you go. You know, that's that's handy, I suppose. Um, strong borders, after all, very important. Look, um, it'll create 350 jobs, apparently. Right, right, right. Um, but as you, it shows that it's a seat by seat, yeah, pork yeah. barrelling. You know, we have no big vision. So here we go. We're going to give you stuff in each seat that we're desperately trying to hang on to. That's been the coalition's approach right through this campaign. Um, and you have to say it's not working because look at the polls. And, and you know, it's not just the fact that the the polls aren't showing that the coalition's catching up. Um, there's been broader effects because of the coalition's narrowness and their negativity. And I did write an article about this in New Matilda last Thursday, not to give a plug, but simply to point out that I'm kind of repeating myself, which is basically that the inherent limitations of the coalition's campaign are starting to come to the fore. Mm. So they're down on talent. You know, half of the front bench is not standing or has retired or has left politics. They've really run a one-man show centred around Morrison. They don't have much policy to sell. So Morrison's going around the country really not much with not much to tell people so this is why he's got to shower sort of micro bribes on seats on a seat by seat basis Um, that's not a very stable platform from which to build a case for re-election you know and it's led to some absurd kind of occasions where for example that all of the front bench ministers are refusing to debate their Labor counterparts, for example. So Penny Wong tried to have a debate on foreign policy, a pretty important area, I would have thought. And the foreign minister, Maurice Payne, refused to turn up. The coalition sent Simon Birmingham. Now, 
you know, foreign policy is important. And if the foreign minister of Australia is not prepared to debate foreign policy over the next three years of government, that doesn't say much about your fitness for government, I don't think. Well, foreign policy is pretty vital, especially um, regarding our relationship with great powers like China. And we've seen China grow a bit cool in terms of some of our exports in resources, for example, and also for taking our recycling. So there's, you know, important things, elements of foreign policy. Paul Keating made some remarks around China um, which were for some reason controversial. Um, He said some other very intelligent, fantastic things uh, which just goes to show that he's not lost his um, pizzazz. But one of the things that I was pretty surprised by is that, uh, as I said at the start of the show, Scott Morrison, when asked about uh, whether Australia has to pick between uh, America and China, which of course is a stupid question, um, but we, given that we've got this massively escalating trade dispute and increasing tariffs from on either side, he said that um, we've got to look after our friends and, and our customers. And he was basically suggesting that China is Australia's customer it's a, a one-way transaction. It's not really a great way to characterise um, a pretty important relationship. Well, Australia has picked. Australia's picked the United States and we've shown that with our continued alliance with the United States and our continued enthusiasm for containing China and the South China Sea. So, um, and, and that worries me and that, that's what Paul Keating's worried about too, you know, and that's why he called out the intelligence agencies for their scare campaign over China's influence. Now, the intelligence agencies maintain that they're correct, that the Chinese are trying to infiltrate our telecommunications networks and the Chinese were the ones who hacked the Parliament House web server and so on and so forth. But, you know, I, I think what's really concerning here on a macro level is we're entering a kind of new Cold War here. It's very concerning um, what's going on in the South China Sea. And Australia does face some really difficult choices. And you know, let's hope that it doesn't come to the crunch anytime soon. But if it does, I don't think we're very prepared at all. No, but the difference is that Bill Shorten then came out and suggested that that's not the case and that we need to be more nuanced when we talk about China and America because China isn't just an economic partner. There are other parts of exchange between Australia and China that are relevant and valued. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I think Penny Wong is going to be a pretty safe pair of hands in the foreign ministry, so time will tell. Um, but at least on the, on the big picture issues of the US alliance, the Labor and the coalition are in lockstep on that. Mm. Now, there's a few things uh, going on. As we've said, there's a lot of misinformation. The coalition are not doing particularly well on the environment, which is something... <laughs> that's, what a shock. Oh, you reckon? What a shock, yeah. Um, <laughs> understatement of the century and so what I found particularly interesting in the last week is that they've tried to talk about their record which I don't know why you would want to highlight that but um, Scott Morrison has come out to say when we saw that massive UN report that we referenced about um, the extinction crisis and that we're losing so much biodiversity he suggested um, that that they had actually dealt with that issue through legislation in the last parliament and the Guardian was like well we don't know what relation uh, legislation you're talking about and they looked it up and apparently it was about animal testing yeah that was just a lie by Morrison on the run and another lie which has just come out recently is that uh, Scott Morrison has said that they the coalition has saved the Great Barrier Reef and it is no longer on an endangered list I mean it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic Uh, unfortunately it is tragic so it's not funny no and that's I think it's deeply 
deeply depressing the way the coalition treats this stuff it's these things are not talking points these these issues are too big and too serious to be flippantly bandied about in the heat of a press conference as though it's a kind of point scoring issue and i and i actually think this goes to some of the problem that voters have with morrison which is that his glibness uh his ability to be loose of the truth particularly under pressure um, you know, his combativeness when pressed on issues, uh, mm. I think it, it goes to a fundamental problem with the coalition on a bunch of these policy areas, which is that they do stand for the destruction of the barrier reef. I mean, this is the bloke who brought a lump of coal into parliament. They do stand for climate change in a devastating fashion. You know, like, like this, this coalition has the worst environmental policy probably of any federal government in on record really it's hard mm. to think of a worse one going back to the 30s um so you know on the one hand you know you feel sorry for anyone trying to defend what that record but on the other hand that's their record that's that's what they've done in office you know and on the barrier reef specifically as we know they didn't do anything on the barrier reef except give half a billion dollars to a coalition li- linked charity um, which is run by the wife of the former chief of staff of the Queensland LNP Premier. Mm, and they didn't even apply for the money. They just got given it out of the blue. Ah, uh, you know, sometimes these things happen, don't they? Yeah. It's good good <laughs> luck sometimes, you know. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> luck. Um, now, just finally, Ben, a couple of things. There are a number of independents running and also minor parties at, at this election, more so than others. Uh, particularly looking at independents, there are some that are looking very, very dangerous. What are some of the most dangerous at the moment? Uh, dangerous in what respect, Amy? In going to take a seat of right, yes. a Liberal Party or Labor Party politician. Um, well, there's a whole bunch of them that I think that are looking pretty good, actually. Um, you know, I, I think in... Actually, I actually think Oliver Yates in Kuyong um, is a chance to come through from behind... Yeah, uh, if he if he was able to snowball all the preferences of the minor parties, get into second position, he would then get all of the Greens' preferences, and he's got a chance then of knocking off Josh Frydenberg and Kuyong. Mm. Well, that is actually nearly the only way. Oliver Yates came out it's yesterday. The only way he could do it. Yeah, yeah you he have has to come to... third, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's how he can win. Um, there's a bunch of of independents that I think. I've got a really good chance. I think Rob Oakeshott in Cowper is a really good chance. Um, I, I think we're looking at some uh, regional independents uh, across the country that have got good chances. I think Zali Stegall in Warringah mm. um, is... I think it's got to be line ball there for Tony Abbott, actually. He must be very worried up there, and you know he's worried because he got John Howard to come through and do do some uh, appearances yesterday in Warringah. So that's pretty interesting. Um, there's, there's insurgent independent candidates all over the country and it's part of a long-term trend of people are pretty cheesed off of the major parties Mm. and i think part of it is when you get (coughs) excuse me when you get independents on the telly to talk about their policies like karen phelps for example or helen haynes in indi um they sound pretty sensible because they say things like i'm going to look at the issues i'm going to treat every policy independently and look on it on its merits, mm. you know. And represent my I'm electorate. I'm going to represent my constituents. I'm mm. going to talk to them and see what they want me to take back to Canberra. And when voters hear that kind of thing, they think, that's pretty good. 
They like that, you know, and you can't get that kind of rhetoric from a major party politician because, of course, they're not able to say that. They have to toe the party line by definition. So I think the trend towards independence is going to continue. Yes. Um, Now, finally, Ben, we should just mention uh, preferencing and what people should think about on Saturday when they're voting because your preferences are very important when you're numbering the boxes. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of misinformation around about preferences and who preferences who and what does that mean. And actually, it's really simple. You need to vote for every box in the lower house. So you need to number every box in the lower house and you should vote for the candidates simply in the order of your preference. So vote one for the candidate you like the most, that you want to win to represent you in your seat. Vote two for the second most preferred candidate and so on down the list and that's the easiest way to vote that'll be the truest representation of your preferences don't worry about what all the parties are telling you they don't control your preferences only you controls your preferences by numbering all the boxes Mm. and in the senate uh, you can vote above the line one to six or you can vote below the line at least 12 boxes below the line or you can if you're like me like try to fill out all 120 <laughs> of them which can take you a little while um, but I like all the democracy I can get yeah and um, you should also take care of looking at the names very very carefully because there are some very similar names such as the DLP the Democratic Labor Party and the actual Australian Labor Party um, I'm told that the ALP's um, position on the Senate ballot is right to the right hand side towards the end so you do need to when you get this massive sheet of Senate paper take extra care to tell um, which party is which because there's a lot of Liberal and Labor type names yes. across the entire yes. ballot. you do need to to do your research and be wary of some of the minor parties because some of the names of those parties do not represent their policies. For example, uh, the Health Party is actually an anti-vaccination party. Uh, there's a range of far-right micro parties. Sustainable Australia. Sustainable Australia is a low immigration party. Uh, so there's a range of micro parties that do not necessarily represent what their name says. So you do need to do your research as an informed voter. Yeah, Ben, thanks for coming in to talk about uh, federal politics and the election. And of course, next week we'll be talking about who's won. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to be vox popping around on Saturday, and I'll be tweeting out. So if you like to follow my Twitter, you can follow what I'll be doing and I'll be holding up somewhere or other on election night um, watching the results come in. Can't so, wait. Yeah, I'll file an article for New Matilda on Sunday probably and then we'll, we'll talk on Tuesday. Sounds hey? good. Thank you for be- coming in and talking federal politics. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Ben Eltham, who's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio the wonderful David Walker. He is the an emeritus professor at Deakin University. He's also a professorial fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And you may recall that I spoke with David a couple of months ago over the phone to talk about uh, a most excellent essay that he wrote in the Australian Foreign Affairs Journal, um, which was on a related topic. And there is some um, overlap 
that. But this book that uh, David has written is goes into so much more depth and uh, breadth on this topic. It's called uh, Stranded Nation, and it is a really wonderful piece of um, historical scholarship and research. The subtitle is White Australia in an Asian Region, and uh, David has written a, well a lot on this subject. He's actually written other related books as well, and I believe it was called Anxious Nation was uh, the other book that's almost kind of a complement to this book as well. So I'm delighted now to uh, welcome David into the studio and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I enjoyed our chat so much last time that I couldn't wait to speak to you again. Good. Good. (laughs) Happy to be here. That's good. Um, I did notice that Stephen Fitzgerald is actually um, uh, an associate of yours and he's written, um, I guess, the preface to this book. Um, What is your kind of relationship with Stephen and um, perhaps you can share his significance to uh, this subject with us? Yes, well, Stephen... um of course, was our man in Beijing, uh, or yes, from 1972. So he was the the first uh, ambassador to the People's Republic of China, uh, appointed by the Whitlam government. And he was a mere boy at the time. He was about 32. Wow. So it's extraordinary that he's still with us, in, in fact, because, you know, he's... Uh, He's been around uh, and at the centre of uh, public affairs and uh, Australia-China affairs for a very long time. Mm. And um, when I was in my uh, position as uh, the BHP Professor of Australian Studies at Peking University, uh, Stephen came through on a couple of occasions. Uh, I invited him also to a conference that I organised in uh, Shanghai in 2015 and he gave a absolutely fabulous uh, talk there which was partly about his time in in Beijing and his time as ambassador which became the basis for Comrade Ambassador his uh, his book on on that experience but also his wider experience of um, China. Yeah, well, he's a highly regarded person in this field, and as are you. So um, it's great to hear from him and his take on this book. And um, he's talking about your book and what he's taken out of it, of course. Um, And he said he savoured the reading of this book um, because although Australia-Asia relations have been a professional interest for me over the past six decades, it has enlightened me on much I never knew. I feel like that's a pretty big endorsement, isn't it? I'm happy. I'm happy with that endorsement. I I'm willing to accept that. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's good. But I, but I think actually the point that Stephen's also making is that that in fact there is a history to be researched there. And as much as we often think we know a subject or we know the history because we've lived it, uh, when you actually go back to the records. Uh, and have a look at you know what was said and what was done and what was what was uh, thought. Uh, new stuff uh, come comes to light, and, and I think he was making the he was making a case for history there. I think as well, Amy, mm. that um, you really do have to go back to the records, and uh, that's the best way to get a, a more comprehensive understanding of uh, you know where we've been. Of course, and you say about. Um Australia and Asia and our relationship and perception of Asia that we've kind of often put them um, 
over as a, a distant future, some kind of something that's going to happen for us, for Australia, that a relationship that's going to emerge and grow somewhere into the future. And so you've highlighted that um, that can often shut down any kind of examination of what's happened in the past, which is, as any historian knows, very important not only for the present in terms of how we um, manage our relationships and build upon our connections, but also for the future. Sure. Yeah, no, I think the I'm quite fascinated by this by this futurist project, if you like, and it's it goes back to the late 19th century, really. I mean, the idea... If you look at the invasion writing, and we may come to this later, but if you look at the the idea of invasion, nearly always those stories are set a generation into the future. So uh, the warning goes out that unless we uh, address the problem that is building in our community now, we're going to face some kind of uh, catastrophic moment and we better prepare for it. And that idea that that we face an Asian future often has a fairly catastrophic tinge to it, you know, that mm. it's something we should be worrying about rather than uh, anticipating more positively. But it continues right down to, uh, for example, the Gillard White Paper uh, on, on Asia, on Australia's place, Australia in the Asian century, and all of that was framed pretty much as something that was unprecedented. She used the term unprecedented, that, that we face unprecedented times. Of course, that's always true. I mean, the present, whatever future we face is unprecedented by definition. You know, it's not going to repeat what's happened in the past. But the idea that we've never had to face rising Asia and that uh, this is something that uh, is occurring to us for the first time is simply wrong. You know, we've, we've faced rising Asia over the last uh, century. But I think the other danger in it is that it, it, it is a kind of act of postponement, you know, that we're saying to ourselves, this is, this is happening or about to happen or will one day happen. Uh, we don't need to really get too urgent about it just yet. Um, a little bit like climate change for some people, but let's let's just wait around and see how it turns out, and and then we'll address it. But the fact of the matter is, it's with us now, mm. and we've been facing different versions of rising Asia for the last century. Do you think there is, or the reason why perhaps there's been this act of postponement of pushing Asia and our relationship into the future, is it partially because of perhaps a lack of understanding of Asia, and obviously Asia is quite a, a big term, but there's so many parts of Asia, so many countries within Asia that have their own identities, their own very unique cultures and languages. Perhaps do you think there is a bit of a disconnect or a lack of understanding of those cultures and, um, you know, the, the differences but also the similarities? Oh, I think that's true. I think that is true. I mean, Asia is a pretty um, awkward uh, term and an awkward category. I mean, in some ways, indispensable. I mean, we can't hold a conversation without using the word and without using the term, but the term has its, um, has its drawbacks because it, it covers so much cultural diversity and so much uh, so much historical diversity and uh, 
and so on that that it's pretty you know it, it's a it's a way of papering over a whole lot of uh, very very important differences but i think the other dynamic in this is that we tend to look back upon that past as being pretty unhelpful to us in a nation building kind of way you know we we kind of know that uh, our treatment of um Asian communities historically wasn't uh, wasn't terrific. Um, our attitudes towards the Chinese in the 19th uh, and early 20th century was often extremely prejudiced and derogatory. So there's a fear in the community, I think, and perhaps an understandable one, that we really don't want to dredge all that stuff up mm. at a time when we're trying to engage rising Asia. But I, I do quite a bit of teaching in uh, in China at Beijing Foreign Studies University in uh, in Beijing, and I go through all this stuff with the students. Um, they're pretty unfazed about the fact. I mean, they're not comfortable with the images that uh, I present to them, and the, but they they're more inclined to wonder what's wrong with us that we should mm. have been perpetrating these kinds of stereotypes than what's wrong with them. So I think we've just got to muscle up a bit and have a bit more courage about talking about about our past because the the people in Asia who we often worry about being, you know, too sensitive or too concerned about this are much more comfortable comfortable with us addressing it and facing it and discussing it than they are with us attempting to hide it. Mm. So it's a past we can go back to. We shouldn't be excessively ashamed about it. I think we just look at it, analyse it, fess yes. up. <laughs> well, the more you hide something or don't address it, the more you are making it appear to be shameful or giving it a kind of air of shame. Yes, I think that's right. I, I think it is a hell of a lot better to, to get a bit of sunlight onto it and and discuss it. And some of the discussions I've had with the uh, students in China have been terrific, actually. I mean, about how stereotypes work, uh, who needs them, who uses them, why this emphasis or that emphasis. And so the the discussion that you can have once you open it up and just look at it is really pretty rewarding and worthwhile. Mm. And you've, uh, in other conversations, talked about a bit of a link in terms of confronting our past with um, our treatment of Aboriginals in Australia, the, the first people of Australia, and also those um, in Asia and who've perhaps migrated to Asia or just people over there in Asia who we are um, engaging with at different levels, but perhaps we're excluding at, via a policy like the White Australia policy, which was in a way preventing a lot of um, people from Asia from migrating to Australia. Well, I think there's, I think there's a very uh, interesting and, and quite intricate connection around the, the Asian question, the, the question of rising Asia in the late 19th century. And our attitudes towards uh, British colonisation or European colonisation of Australia. And one of the things I argue is that by this period, by the 1890s, there's beginning to be an awareness, I think, that what we did to Aboriginal Australia, uh, Asia will do to us. So in the language of that period, uh, white replaces black, 
yellow in mm. 19th century terminology. Yellow replaces white. So, and there's a book uh, published 1904 called The Coloured Conquest, which is a novel. Uh, but it's essentially that theme that runs through the coloured conquest that what what we did to them Asia will do to us so that that is also coming up at a time when the nation is being formed so mm. we've got 1890s we've got the federation movement we've got um, the whole process of trying to get the colonies to come together uh, as a commonwealth so Rising Asia uh, coincides with Rising Australia, if you like, or the creation of the Commonwealth of Australia. Mm. But Rising Asia is also the thing that can remove or eliminate or wipe out the new Commonwealth. So sitting in the national psyche, I think, is this pretty deeply embedded concern that... that um, Asia might be terminal for us. You know, we've only just come into being as a nation. We're just looking uh, towards the dawn and our bright future. We're just imagining the kind of people, the kind of nation we could become, and there on the horizon is terminal Asia about to wipe us out. So I think uh, you can overstate that and and it can be, um, you know, put in terms that are a bit too uh, sort of blunt. But, mm. but I think there's a dynamic of that kind going on there. Yeah, and you raise an important point in terms of the context of what we're talking about when we're saying that um, in terms of the settlement of Australia and the Federation of Australia, it was as a society, a white society predominantly, a new <coughs> nation um, that was yeah, federated early in the 20th century. And so when you think about... Uh, societies like Japan and China that are very advanced civilizations that have you know have a huge uh, amount of invention and history and culture behind them um, that some of the and of course Australia has one of the longest histories with its indigenous people um, in the entire world but when you're looking at then the British and um, the Europeans coming and settling they had this um, I guess as you say mindset of being a new nation of being just formed and of course then feeling perhaps more intimidated by the sophistication perhaps of Asia, although I'm interested in the way that they're stereotyped as perhaps not having that sophistication that we would know that they had. Well, I think there are a number of things going on there. I mean, if you go if you go to the Chinese and a lot of the language around race in this period, late 19th, early 20th century, is is based around understandings of or misunderstandings of biology and and all the rest of it. So the Chinese were regarded as a very um, that the, they were the possessors of a very uh, tenacious bloodline. So the concern was that you could never breed out the Chinese again using nineteenth century categories and terminology you couldn't breed them out so whereas aboriginal australians were thought of in the language of the time as evanescent you know they were a disappearing race so the part of the concern was uh these very tenacious bloodlines so get a few drops of chinese blood into the community and the culture and it would never be eradicated but sitting behind that is is just that argument about the depth of their civilizations you know that they have been around a very long time mm. 
uh, and they've achieved some remarkable things across thousands of years. And when it came to the Japanese, uh, Alfred Deakin once rather famously said that uh, it was their good qualities that we had to fear. And historians, I think, have kind of misunderstood that statement. I mean, they've disparaged his comment, but I, I think if you locate it in the context of the early 20th century, the argument that he's making is precisely that argument about how disciplined they are, mm. how um, how uh, their capacities are evident in the civilizations that they've created, and in the case of the Japanese, just how quickly and miraculously they've uh, modernised after the Meiji Restoration in 1868. So across a generation... Uh, Japan had come to the forefront of the world's attention and that required enormous uh, skills, capacities, uh, discipline, talent, you know, mm. so don't write them off, you know. Yes, and it also we see a rising relationship between Japan and the British Empire and Australia becoming very anxious about that and making it clear that they're concerned um, that perhaps Britain will... Um, parcel off any kind of responsibility to defend Australia and push it on to the Japanese, um, given that they, you know, started creating treaties with each other. Um, and that was certainly something which uh, I know that the Australian Prime Ministers brought up and raised concerns um, with the British and also then decided they needed to form their own uh, form of defence. And it almost really pushed Australia into becoming more independent Yes, I mean, I, th I think the the difference of opinion over Japan and Japan's future was one of the critical points of departure or was a, 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 a real difficulty in uh, aligning an Australian point of view, an emerging Australian point of view with a, with a British imperial view. Because out of that treaty, the 1902 treaty, the... Japanese, which Japan and Britain signed, um, the Japanese were assigned a role, the Japanese Navy was assigned a role in the Pacific. And so the British Empire, the British naval capacity was stretched. Uh, they felt that they couldn't necessarily look after our part of the world. Now, Again, from the British point of view, this might have looked uh, quite um, sensible and a sensible treaty arrangement. From an Australian point of view, it looked uh, pretty alarming. And it looked more alarming after 1904-05 when the Japanese defeated the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War, which is the first time in the modern era that an Asian nation defeats a European nation. So mm. all of those... Anxieties that had built up around race war, uh, about uh, the fact that there was an inevitable struggle between the white and the yellow races, uh, came to a head around that time. And there was also the feeling that Australia would be one of the battlegrounds in that in that great race war because he was a tremendously um, valuable continent. Uh, largely, again, in the rhetoric of the period, largely empty. So an empty continent mm. available for colonisation and as a prize uh, in the race war, in the coming race war, 
it was uh, unparalleled. So Australia sort of is figured into this this language and this um, contestation over the future uh, in a very direct and immediate way. Mm. And in terms of um, Britain and its influence on Australia in having a relationship with uh, Asia and Asian countries, you highlight in the book um, the terminology that Australia was using which was the Far East, which, of course, you highlight the fact that Asia isn't to our Far East, it's to our Near North. And so it was interesting that it took quite a while for anyone to start using um, alternate, more accurate terminology like the Near North um, when we talk about our neighbours because, of course, they are our closest neighbours. Yes, I mean, we... we in again looking at late 19th early 20th century we're basically using british imperial terminology um to describe the world and uh, our part of the world is different looks different and our relationship to it is different but the the near north far east uh, uh story is a very interesting one i think because in uh, stranded nation I note that one of the first usages or one of the first uh, people to dispute this uh, idea uh, comes up uh, in the 1870s, 1880s. And his argument is that um, looked at from Australia, it's not the Far East, uh, and he does use the term near north. So the, um, you can at least trace the term back to that to that period, around 1880, people are, mm. some people are beginning to say, hang on, um, we better rethink our, our language and the way we think about and uh, discuss our relationship to the region. So there it is, 1880, and then it's not until uh, Menzies' first radio broadcast as Prime Minister in 1939 that he uses the term near north and what he says in that broadcast which has to be a very deliberate moment for a for a new prime minister i mean it's not again i think historians have missed the significance of it because i think menzies was trying to make the point that we have to think about our place in the region Mm. and we have to think uh about this as our near north not as our far east now the other Part of what Menzies was saying, I think, was not that we should therefore develop an independent foreign policy and we should strike out on our own. I think his argument was that this is Australia's opportunity to step onto the world stage alongside Britain so Mm. that we could be, uh, you know, Britain's partner in uh, managing the... Pacific and managing Pacific affairs. So it's not a moment of, of uh, striking independence, but it's a moment of uh, announcing Australia's uh, collaborative intention and uh, desire to be recognised by Britain as a worthwhile player 
in the region. But the term Pacific's pretty interesting in all this. Can I ramble yes. on about that? Amy? Yeah, I was going Am to I ask about to that. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, well, the, the Pacific, I think, is a very interesting term because it, it's again, there are a lot of there are a lot of Asia-related terms that are being used um, in this period down to the first half of the 20th century. But in Australia, the Pacific becomes the preferred term, I think. And my argument is that it's really a reassuring way of referring to the region because it refers to naval, the Pacific uh, is an allusion to naval naval power. It's about oceans. Mm. It's about naval power, and it includes the United States, includes Britain and the United States. So it picks up all those heroic references about um, you know Drake and Frobisher and the British Navy. It draws in the American uh, naval power, the Great White Fleet, and and so on. The the ways in which America had become increasingly uh, significant as a naval power. And it reassures Australians that the Pacific is not something quite so worrisome as that other thing, uh, Asia, the Asian landmass, which is characteristically referred to as teeming and um, massive populations uh, hell-bent on on uh, coming down towards Australia. So the landmass idea of Asia conjures up invasive Asia mm. and the Pacific conjures up much more reassuring images about our British imperial past and our uh, potentially American uh, future, but it's naval, it's naval power. And on the oceans, you know, we're, we're, we rule the waves. Mm. Where do you think we're at in terms of our terminology now then? Because obviously Asia-Pacific gets bandied about quite a lot when you're talking about the region as a whole. Mm. Well, I mean, we've shifted away from Asia-Pacific now because Asia-Pacific had a kind of um, run from about uh, 2005 or so. So it had about a 10-year run. It it predated that, of course, Mm. but it really had a a very strong and was preferred in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and so on. So it was was the term. Asia-Pacific was the term. And then a few years ago it became Indo-Pacific, so Asia is sort of taken out of it and there's a lot of argument about why this might be happening but one of the things that does concern me a bit is trying to remove Asia from the terminology again uh, and especially so if that means that we're once again worried about Asia you know we 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 don't we prefer that term not to be there so <laughs> Indo-Pacific is more reassuring but but also in the um you know, the APEC conference in in New Guinea recently, the Xi Jinping was referring to the Asia-Pacific and the American Vice President Pence was referring to the Indo-Pacific. So there's a huge amount of confusion going on here about, you know, what we're talking about and the implications of what we talk about in a, in a geopolitical, geostrategic way. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, bringing it back a bit, because you did say we wanted to talk about invasion and you highlight a, a range of, I guess, cultural products, literary um, stories that were fictional and um, non-fictional. And we saw, as you say, the first Australian story of Asian invasion in William Lane's 
Queen's uh, piece, White or Yellow, from 1888. Um, now, I don't. I believe William Lane was quite a controversial figure um, in and of itself, but why did or how did this kind of narrative around invasion and, um, you know, it, obviously the term was also used quite a lot at the time as well. Like it seemed like a quite a common term in newspapers is this anxiety and this kind of, yeah, f- seems like seemingly out of control concept of invasion. Yeah, I mean, whether how out of control it was is another matter. And I think, you know, we have to look at things like, you know, who read this stuff, what what its circulation was and so on. Uh, and I think it's possible to get a bit too excited about, you know, everyone was lapping it up. Because, um, and, and, and I say that partly because a lot of the writing was designed to wake Australians up to the danger they're in. Now, mm. if they weren't awake to the danger they're in, they were obviously pretty relaxed. And so a lot of the stories, um, there's another one, um, the Yellow Wave, a romance of the Asiatic invasion of Australia, a ripping yarn in the late 1890s, and and that's a, a Chinese-Russian collaboration over invasion, and the Russians um, are uh, shocked and appalled at how um, casual Australians are about the danger they're in, mm. and you know they're much more fascinated by the Melbourne Cup and you know betting and racing and football and all the rest of it, so. There's a dual narrative running through this. On the one hand, there's a bunch of people writing about invasion uh, as 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 warning, uh, but the subtext of what they're writing is often that these people don't care as much as they should. You know, we really <laughs> got to get into them and wake them up. So, uh, again, as an historian, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by by that slightly contradictory. Um, a storyline running running through that material, but getting back to Lane, I mean, I think the one of the really interesting and telling things uh, about the story. Well, there are two things there: white or yellow. So it's a choice. You know, you can't have both. And this goes back to the bloodlines thing and Lane's obsession with population and blood. Uh, get a few drops of Chinese blood into the community, and you're a goner. So it's it's not. It's not a matter of compromise or it's not, you know, we can accommodate or live with or, you know, work alongside the Chinese. It's it's white or yellow. And the subtitle, The Race War of AD 1908, so it sets the story a generation into the future. So the, the futurist uh, narrative um, enters, enters the language uh, at that point as well. Mm. So... But invasion, invasion is also designed as a way of talking about nation building. So it's a way of saying we're about to be threatened, uh, we're in danger of being rolled as a nation. What do we have to do to defend ourselves? How do we, how do we fight this off? And one of the persistent themes running through that uh, that body of literature is that the defence of Australia lies in the rural interior and the heroic figure, the race patriot, who will defend us from rising Asia is the Bushman. So I would argue, and I've argued this with absolutely no success whatsoever, Amy, Mm. among my historian colleagues, that um, uh, some of the enthusiasm for the Bush and the Bushman 
not all of it, of course. I mean, there are a number of reasons why the bush became as important as it did for Australians. But part of the reason for that enthusiasm is that the rise of the bush coincides pretty much with the rise of Asia as a invasive force. And how are we going to... Where do we get the 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 moral and human resources that we need, the disciplines, capacities, uh, skills, horsemanship, uh, ability with rifles and all the rest of it. Where do we get that quasi-military capacity to defend ourselves in the event of a crisis? And the mm. argument constantly comes back to the bush and the bushman. So the bush is not just this sort of happy place with lots of chirping birds, kangaroos, flora, fauna, distinctiveness and all the rest of it. It's, it's embedded in the language in the late 19th century. It's embedded in the language of race patriotism. These are the race patriots who will save the nation. Mm. That's pretty surprising, really, that um, it hasn't gotten that traction that you, you know, would expect, um, given there is such a strong correlation. Um, and certainly I know that Australian history has always been very contested and there's a lot of differences and um, we've seen, you know, the culture wars across the years for over a range of issues, particularly around race. Um, but you know, you do point out and highlight some of the historiography and scholarship that's been occurring on this issue um, in the past. Where where do you think you sit then in, in relation to some of your colleagues when you're talking about um, this issue around race and um, and the Bushmen and, yeah, the, the yeah. portrayal of Australia? Well, I think one of the, the, one of the arguments I'd make here, I guess, is that... And... Um, I guess it's also uh, risking the wrath of my colleagues, but but many of them choose Australian history and are interested in Australian history because they want to understandably build up the story of Australia as a distinctive uh, nation and culture, mm. you know, that it stands for something worthwhile, uh, that it's a progressive nation as it's formed in 1901, uh, and that it stands for something that we can and should uh, celebrate. And I don't have a huge problem with that, but but the problem I have with it is that it systematically overlooks the regional context in which this nation emerges and is formed, and that regional context is the Asian region. And running right through the Federation debate, for example, there's a very strong uh, argument around the need for Australia to federate because only a federated Australia can form a national army, for example. Only a federated Australia can defend itself. Only a federated Australia can have uniform railway gauges that will enable the nation to link up and look after itself uh, at the at a time of crisis, so I don't see it as disparaging the nation, diminishing the nation, or weakening the nation. To also point out that that the ways in which we've thought about Asia have been uh, powerful in in determining the kinds of priorities that we've developed uh, in Australia. So again, if you go back, uh, and this is you know this is not particularly controversial actually but if you go back to the first decade of federation 
the money that was poured into the defence budget was extraordinary. And uh, so a small nation uh, expending as much uh, of its resources as it did on defence speaks volumes for uh, that set of concerns around our vulnerability. Mm. There's a similar debate about the point at which the Commonwealth takes over the Northern Territory as a Commonwealth responsibility because at Federation, the Northern Territory was governed by, run by South Australia. The concern there was that 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 uh, was a real point of vulnerability because the North, going back to all those concerns about northern borders and boundaries and vulnerabilities, South Australia, it was thought, was in no position to secure the northern border and the most vulnerable of those northern borders was the Northern Territory. So uh, the Northern Territory becomes a Commonwealth responsibility in 1910. And that, again, is a debate that generates enormous concern around... And one of the driving forces of that debate is we have to close our borders. We have to close the... Encircle Australia, mm. if you like. We have to make it secure. We have to secure Australia. Yeah. Um, so those arguments, I think, all tie in. But I think the missing link often for Australian historians is precisely the Asian context in which some of these debates are framed mm. and developed. But I do want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the other parts of Asia. We've talked about some of the fears of Asia, the invasion narratives that existed in the 19th century, late 19th century and early 20th century. But there was also, as David, you've said, uh, a, tr a fascination with Asia that seems to fly in the face of everything we know or think we know about a closed and emphatically anti-Asian white Australia. It's hard now, as you say, to appreciate that for many Australians of that time, the door to Asia had not been shut tightly enough. So what parts of Australia were had fascinated by Asia and were engaging with Asia perhaps on a personal level um, and, and what kind of ways did they express that fascination? Yes, well, I think, I think that's an interesting point, Amy, and I'm glad you've raised it because it, it does highlight that there is a, a contest going on here, there's a battle going on and, um, and a battle going on over how we characterise the region that we inhabit. So if you go back to the, again, go back to the 1880s and the 1890s, there's a tremendous interest in rising Japan. I mean, Japan is thought of as being, um, as I said before, a kind of miracle of modernisation. But there's also, across the world, there's a rising interest in Japanism, you know, the, mm. the Japanese arts, crafts, and the Japanese aesthetics and, and painting which reaches into Australia as well. Yes. You know, there's, a, there's an interest in the way the Japanese uh, imagine the world, see the world and depict the world. Mm, it influences uh, Art Deco a lot, that art uh, movement. Yes. Uh, yes, a whole lot of... I mean, the late 19th century European art mm. is, you know, Degas and others, Monet and so on. I mean, they're enormously influenced by Japanese aesthetics, which is coming into the West in the late 19th century. And those influences sweep into Australia uh, as well at the same time. So Japan is regarded 
often uh, in in those literary cultural circles as as a miracle uh, society and culture it's it's new there's an appetite for the new and it's considered deeply fascinating so again getting back to my little story the colored conquest i mean the battle line there is between uh, a gentleman who's worried about a, a naval squadron, Japanese, a visiting Japanese naval squadron, which came to Australia, literally came mm. to Australia in 1903, and his, um, you know, delightful partner, Mabel, who is rather more fascinated by the Japanese naval officers than he thinks is appropriate. So the argument is is partly broken open on gender lines, that, again, the, the chaps, the males are the proper guardians of the nation. They understand the danger that rising Japan uh, poses and they can see past the shiny uniforms and the spick and span uh, character, uh, characteristics of the, of the Japanese, whereas poor Mabel, who is much more shallow, not uh, geopolitically aware, and, of course, being a woman can't be, mm. uh, is beguiled by by the Japanese and their uniforms. And so there's a kind of um, story running through that, that, that there's a fascination with rising Asia and an interest in Asian aesthetics, Asian religions, uh, are beginning to uh, attract attention. Uh, and as you mentioned in that quote, uh, there are some in Australia who feel that any interest in Asia... Uh, is dangerous, and the door left open just slightly is is uh, is a menace to our future. So, again, looking back at it uh, as historians, we often think of white Australia is shutting the door. So, white Australia is the thing that shuts the door on Asia, and it keeps it shut for at least half a century. But what that misses, I think, is this this constant. Um, concern about how Asia is imagined, how Australia, how Asia is thought about, and the ways in which various figures, particularly artists, writers and others, are intrigued by Asia, and also travellers are intrigued by Asia, because there are mm. increasingly people travelling into the region and coming back with stories of how, you know, fascinating this world world is. And, and that fascination is seen to be dangerous and so the other the other point i make is that that we often uh i think believe that our uh, anti-japanese sentiment which is of course intensified uh during the second world war and after is kind of innate to us you know we grew up knowing that the Japanese were dangerous. We grew up knowing that we had to fear them. We grew up knowing that we had to be wary of them. Uh, and I would argue the contrary. We grew up being quite intrigued by Japan. We grew up in some quarters being very fascinated by Japan. And we had to be taught that the Japanese were dangerous. And a lot of, again, the invasion stories and a lot of the narratives around closing the door are stories about how we have to be much more careful about uh, entertaining the idea that there's nothing to worry about uh, from either the Japanese or, or from the region. We have to worry about this 
because it's you know it's it's mm. it's threatening our future so it's we learn we have to learn to dislike and fear the japanese it's not innate it's not culturally innate it's not something it's not not the birthright <laughs> it's something we learn yes and there are other elements to this such as um fictional stories that you write about such as Madame Izan from 1899 which um, was written by uh, Rosa Campbell, is it Prayed? Prayed. Prayed and she wrote this really interesting story that you say was about a blind but very beautiful heroine who must choose between two ardent suitors, a splendidly virile Queenslander determined to protect her from intrusive Asia and a somewhat frail Japanese gentleman of high birth and considerable cultivation and what was interesting in that story is that she chose the Japanese suitor yes yes I'm deeply uh, I'm deeply attached to Madame Itzan for all sorts <laughs> of reasons including her blindness of course but mm. the um, the parade uh, the parade story is I think a very clever satire on on the this rising tide of of, of masculinist um, and bush-driven concern about invasive Asia—that it's going to be, it's going to be the male and the, the virile Queenslander, who is the first line of defence against uh, against rising Asia. So in the story, the Queenslander, who's uh, you know extremely wealthy and he's got muscles everywhere, uh, and is totally and absolutely uh, desirable according to the uh, stereotypes is also obsessed by yellow peril anxieties and he's sort of running around Japan um, looking suspiciously at, uh, at, every, at everything that he can see mm. and anticipating a threat uh, to Australia's integrity from, from Japan. But Madame Itzan, of course, being blind, is not um, open to the same kind of uh, racial stereotyping uh, that is often driven by skin colour and sight and physical, physiognomical difference. So in, in a sense, Prade takes her out of, of a racialising discourse, if you like, and says, right, if someone's blind and mm. you're presented with the fundamental qualities of this person and that person, who might they choose? And so she... Um, has her heroine choose the, very wisely in my view, choose the Japanese suitor, who was a lovely fellow, I think. I mean, physically he wasn't up to much, but, mm. you know, very very cultivated, learned, uh, interesting, intellectually uh, worthwhile. Yes, it's not all about looks, is it? No, well, <laughs> that's right. Well, for Madame Itzan, it couldn't be. No, exactly. Um, let's. Uh, I should also just mention, I was so interested when you write about Anna Mae Wong, the chi Chinese-American actress mm. who came, visited Australia and the fascination with her. Um, but we'll have to move on just to close out this discussion. I wanted to talk about a really important part of um, our relationship with Asia, not only in the past, but also now. As you've highlighted in this book, we've been doing business with countries like China for a very long time in different ways and in, at different levels, of course. Um, but we certainly don't just have a, a transactional, economic-based relationship with countries in Asia. And that's something which is often kind of talked about is our strong economic ties and the fact that we sell a lot of our resources to countries like China. And you highlight this kind of um, the really important fact that 
having a relationship with Asia isn't just about, um, you know, buying goods and services and, and having a, a trading relationship. It's a lot more than that and it should be a lot a lot more than that. And we've often, as as politicians, reduced that relationship down to a very transactional and economic basis. Um, some There are some exceptions, of course, with Paul Keating being one of them who, you know, was focused, as was Bob Hawke, on some of the other exchanges between nations. Uh, but I, I want to highlight, as I said um, at the start of the show, one of the most recent examples of this, and of course there are so many, where Scott Morrison... Uh, just yesterday said when asked about whether we would have to take sides in the trade dispute between America and China, he said, you stand by your friends and you stand by your customers as well. So he was kind of really clearly highlighting this very strong sense that Australia is um, selling its goods to China and that is the way that we're interacting. How problematic is that and how has that type of um, arrangement or perception of our relationship to Asia been expressed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it is pretty pro- problematic. I, I think in some ways it's understandable that when um, Australians were trading with China, communist China, in the fifties and sixties, you know, we were selling wheat to China, uh, and the rural communities were benefiting from that. And in fact, they were among the people uh, who supported the idea of uh, China recognition you know uh, when you might imagine that they'd they'd resisted or have concerns about it so selling Asia to Australia has often been done via the trade path you know it's good for us it's good for our economy and that's proved to be the case I mean after 1957 the trade agreement with Japan was very beneficial for us and similarly with China but I think I think that's you know that's fifty sixty years ago or whatever, and the idea that we're still characterising the Chinese, for example, as customers is 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 really is really problematic, and it's problematic on several grounds. But one of them is that even on economic grounds, if we wish to understand the market that we're so uh, obsessed and concerned about. Uh, we need to understand what motivates Chinese choices. What what are their what are their uh, cultural predilections? Why are they wanting this product versus that product? Uh, why do they want French wine rather than Australian wine, or whatever the argument might be? So I think we've got to get away from the idea that they're just uh, sort of, in a sense, two-dimensional receptors of the stuff we want to send them because. They're making choices about what they want. Those choices come from rounded human beings uh, who are culturally embedded in in contemporary China, mm. and their uh, their their choices are important for us to understand. So, we, if we think of them simply as customers, we we not only we damage the thing we're trying to protect, the transactional thing, but we also cut ourselves off from the cultures of the region, which we need 
to know, again, not just in transactional terms, but because we might benefit from it. You know, we <laughs> might learn something from it. We might understand different ways of doing things and different ways of organising the world and understanding the world. And, and that's got to be a positive thing. So it's, it's damaging both at the transactional level, I think. It doesn't help us there at all. But it also creates a kind of um, false sense of security that we don't need to talk about, think about or address their cultures. Yes. And um, what's really interesting also is the fact that we have such a strong population of uh, mainland China people coming to Australia as students in particular and um, coming through our universities. And, of course, any person uh, in their 20s and 30s are likely to have had um, fellow students come from a range of uh, countries in Asia. So it's not too hard to start to engage with Asian culture and different countries via the people who are already in Australia, who are around us um, as fellow um, people, to, to start to break down the barriers that exist. Yes, this gives me a wonderful opportunity, Amy, to draw attention to another um, argument that I run and that we often frame Asia as being outside. It's the Asia without, you know, and it's the and this is part of the invasion narrative, you know, it's the thing outside that's coming to get us. Whereas uh, across our history, there's been Asia within, you know, there have been communities within Australia. Uh, and so, again, that idea that where Asia is the future and it's coming at us and we better, better attend to it and it, we've never been there before, again, overlooks the ways in which these communities have been with us for quite some time and that the ways in which they interact, they address their place in our society and the contributions they make to that society, I think uh, are things we need to pay more attention to. And, and by and large, I think we are. I think we are moving in that direction uh, in terms of the Asia within, if you like. Yes, certainly it needs a bit of a conscious effort to include because if you're not consciously including people and starting to seek to understand others and establish empathy um, for other viewpoints and other backgrounds, then you can sometimes unconsciously exclude people. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is right. And it can take, it can take a bit of effort. And I think also I, I would say on the Chinese side, I mean, it's, all the virtue is not on their mm. side and all the, uh, the, <laughs> the wrong on ours. I mean, I think, again, speaking of the Chinese side, I, I think it's important for them to interact with, with going to the, the student experience, for them to interact with Australian students. It's been one of the, the problems that's come up around international students, that the only students they see are other international students. Because I think we want international students to get a better understanding of our society, of how it works, of our values. You know, we're not just a blank slate. We're not just a place with no culture, no history and nothing worth paying attention to. We have things here that we believe we do well. We have values that we take seriously. Mm. Uh, we want our uh, the communities coming into Australia to understand what those things are, and you know, on the verge of an election, it's important that that people voting, uh, whoever they are and for whatever community they come from, understand the political traditions of our society, understand the values of our society, and know what they're voting for. You know, so there's there's a cultural literacy. Mm 
question on both sides of this of this uh, argument i would i would suggest yes absolutely and i would agree that you know having more cultural exchange and Australians adopting um, some traditions from uh, different Asian countries and Asian countries adopting some of our traditions is a really nice way to share in the kind of joyous differences and special features that we all have as as nations with a long history of culture. Yes, I think that's right. And of course there will be points of tension and Mm. difficulty, but we're going to handle them a lot better if there's some kind of uh, conversational background, there's a shared language, there's a way of approaching these things and there's some degree of uh, mutual understanding that we actually know uh, what we're uh, disagreeing about (laughs) and can resolve that. Yeah. David, it's been so fascinating to speak with you and no doubt... um others have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have because uh, you've really put a lot of thought and work into this book and the ideas that you have put forward and I just um, thank you immensely and congratulate you on another very important work historical piece of scholarship. Thank you Amy it's great to be here. I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor David Walker who is the author of Stranded Nation and it's out through New South Books as well as University of WA Publishing. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten. And uh, and obviously they do some great work publishing some very important and interesting books as well. And uh, David's doing some um, great work, as I said, and he's engaging himself in Asia and I know has um, lived there and um, worked there in different capacities. So he's um, coming from a place of first-hand experience as well as a, as a historian. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And I'm so delighted to have with me back on the show Emma Dawson, who is the Executive Director of Per Capita, which is a think tank based here in Victoria. Of course, it does work far beyond its uh, borders and head office and per capita has been putting out some very important research um, which has been written by Emma and also Warwick Smith who's a fantastic uh, economist so I'm really excited now to have with me Emma and we're going to be talking about some of the policies the core policies in the areas of social security taxation and also employment and these are really important they're all kind of interrelated to be honest and that's um, there are some pretty stark differences and there's a lot of uh, nuance in some of the policies, particularly the ones that um, Labor is putting forward. So thank you so much, Emma, for coming in. Thanks, Amy. Good to be here. It's lovely to have you back and great to draw on your expertise because (laughs) I know that many people have expressed their confusion at times with some of the policies that have been announced, mainly because um, obviously this campaign's been going for a long time, so it's quite... (laughs) easy to get bogged down in the tsunami of policies especially because Labor has so many. They have put a pretty comprehensive suite of particularly economic policies forward at this election I think more so than uh, an opposition in about 30 years so uh, there's a lot to get your head around there but uh, they are as you said interrelated and uh, I think it's really important to understand how they're going to affect the vast majority of people. Mm. And um, we should just mention Labor has released its costings as well and there was a lot of anticipation about that Mm -hmm. and wondering whether, you know, there'd be any big black holes that anyone (laughs) could pull 
pick out, but that hasn't happened, has no, it? No, I think I think the um, creation of the parliamentary budget office under the last Labor government really means now that those costings are very carefully uh, calculated and Labor also has a panel of three independent experts that review them as well. So uh, no-one's found any black holes, which is good. <laughs> it means we can focus on the policies and stop trying to play gotcha on the mistakes. Uh, there are no mm. mistakes in those costings as far as we can see. Um, but... Importantly, I think we, we at Per Capita put a report out last year with Anglicare Australia that talked about the cost of privilege in Australia and we found that foregone revenue to the budget from tax concessions for the top 20% of income earners was about $68 billion a year. And I think what's pleasing for us, um, having done that work and having made the call for um, governments to <coughs> concentrate on taking... On, on making savings by addressing tax concessions is that's the approach Labor's taking to this election. So the yes. war chest that they've built up is really coming from closing uh, tax concessions, from reducing public expenditure on subsidising the lifestyles of the wealthy. Mm. So a lot of what they've done on negative gearing and uh, capital gains tax concessions, for example, is really only going to affect about 4% of Australians down the track. And the important thing with that one is to remember that it's grandfathered. So if you've got an investment property today, it's not going to be affected by those changes. You can continue to negatively gear it. But in future, uh, if you buy an investment property, presuming Labor wins the election and legislates this change... Um, uh, if you buy an investment property after that time and it's an existing house, then you can't negatively gear that anymore. Mm. Um, you can if you buy a new house. So there's a stimulatory impact of that policy as well. It should it should theoretically lead to greater housing supply. And that's one of the things we know we really need some supply-side interventions in the housing market to make it more affordable. Yeah. Um, but they're saving good good amount of money there and they're really only affecting existing quite wealthy... Um, well, <coughs> not, ex not affecting existing... Uh, investment property owners but future property owners and they tend to be very wealthy families that make the most use of that. Mm. And we saw Bill Shorten on Q&A and there were some interesting questions that got asked mm. and some people quite anxious about how these policies might affect them and of yep. course Bill Shorten as he um, said about negative gearing if you've got a pre-existing mm. property that is negatively geared this isn't affecting you and so I think it's important to make sure that people are aware of how right. these will work in practice yeah. and there are some other areas that um, will provide labour with a, a greater amount of money to put towards services that's right like yep. um, franking credits yep. and reducing what we give people That's who right. already receive franking credits. Yep. So let's debunk some of the mm. concerns that people have around this new policy. Yeah, this has been a big scare campaign by the coalition. Um, franking credits is, you know, it's not a subject. I, I think that the best line someone, I don't know who it was, someone in the Labor Party, I assume, came up with is, if you don't know what a franking credit is, you're not getting one. Um, if you don't understand it, you're probably not making use of it. Yeah. Um, it is only going to, it's not going to affect 90, 96% of people. Uh, Labor has exempted pensioners or part pensioners from the franking credit change. Look, essentially, it's a, it's a very sensible measure to reverse something that should never have happened in yes. the first place. When dividend imputation was introduced by Paul Keating, the intention was to ensure that the a share of company profits that was paid to a shareholder as as a dividend. So if you own shares and your and the company in which you own shares makes a profit, they pay you some money 
on the value of that profit. Uh, it was being taxed twice before dividend imputation. So the company was paying tax on it and then the shareholder was paying income tax on it. What uh, Keating did was to say, well, the shareholder no longer has to pay the income tax. They can sit, use it to reduce their other taxable income uh, so that it's not being taxed twice. It's mm. only being taxed at the company level. Now, when Howard and Costello made the change to allow people to use um, um, franking credits to reduce their taxable income below zero, um, they essentially meant that essentially means that it's not being taxed at all. Mm. So if you think about it, the company's paying the tax uh, to the government, and then the government's giving that tax back to a person that hasn't paid no income tax. Yep. And that means that revenue's not going into, this, into the um, Commonwealth at all. Mm. Um, it, again, really only affects people with quite a high level of income. Um, there's some dispute about this. There are some people whose you know, taxable incomes aren't very high and they're going to be affected. But we've got to remember that that's taxable income. Superannuation yes. is not taxed at all. Um, and actually... A lot of people that have been objecting this, to this have been saying, look, I, I'm not going to have anything left to leave my kids. Well, I think mm. it's a pretty spurious argument to say that the rest of us that are paying taxes on our income every day should be subsidising an inheritance for people's children. That inherently leads to a more unequal society. Yes. Uh, so, you know, we've made the argument at Per Capita that actually this is just about... The ensuring that that tax doesn't disappear from the system altogether, which is what currently happens if you're giving a tax refund to someone who doesn't pay income tax, but also about ensuring that, that people use the superannuation system the way it was intended, which is to draw yeah. down on their capital. Mm. And if you think about it, if you draw down 5 or 6% of your capital in a year um, to spend additional money to make up the shortfall that you've now lost because you've lost those franking credits, but your capital continues to grow right. at 5 mm. or 6% a year, yep. the impact on you is really only 1% to 2%. Mm. Yes, and compound we've seen interest. Compound interest. And we've seen cases of people in their 80s saying, look, I've got $500,000, I'm going to have to draw down on that to make up the shortfall of you know losing 15000 They'll still likely have you know three or $400,000 in the bank when they're 100. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the likelihood of them losing all their money is very, very slim. They'll still have a chunk. And most of these people, almost all of these people also own their family home outright. So the kids aren't going to be left with nothing. It's just a, it's a fair measure. Uh, mm. It really re removes a gift that should never have been in the system in the first place. And the important thing to remember, as you said, is that all this money goes to government to pay for services, to pay for health and for education and for childcare and for aged care and for roads and for transport, the things that we all use. So it is actually money that otherwise would be missing. Yes, and it's interesting really that wealth transfer is one of the main drivers of inequality Absolutely. and Thomas Piketty was very keen to highlight that in his book. Yeah. And so, you know, although we don't have an inheritance tax, which no. is disappointing for me because <laughs> I think we should have one, um, that is another of the misnomers that's going around. Yeah, there's a big scare campaign. Labor's going to introduce a death tax. They have absolutely no policy to introduce mm -hmm. a death tax, even though many economists um, believe it's, a, and it is, a very effective way of ensuring redistribution and egalitarianism. Neither party's uh, proposing that. Uh, so, and you're right. I mean, by essentially saying that working people that pay their income tax should subsidise franking credits so that wealthy people can hand down more money to their kids will eventually lead to a greater differentiation, exacerbation of equality so that the children that inherit from wealthy people mm. have a much greater head start in life than do people that don't inherit. And that's never been what Australia's been about. We, we've always been here about trying to pursue
pursue an egalitarian society, equal opportunity. Uh, and this is just another measure currently in place that leads to more inequality. I think it's a good thing to see that being removed mm. by, by one party of government. And the well-off, of course, have access to great financial advice. Mm. So people can reduce their taxable income already to a pretty low level yeah. if they have excellent financial advice yeah. and they're not doing anything illegal by reducing their taxable income. No, they're not. I but mean, we've... Yeah, we put a report out last week, um, mm. which you can find on the per capita website called Meet the Taxpayers, where we actually did a couple of snapshots of different taxpayer scenarios. And one of them was an aggressively tax avoiding couple, uh, business owners. And we make these people up, but they're typical, they're, they're realistic scenarios yep. and we model the impact quite closely. But we called them um, Hugh and Angela and we, you know, they have a business profit uh, annually of $230,000 a year. Now, by using various measures, including negative gearing, um, using a trust to, to distribute income from Hugh's business to the wife and to his children, mm. um, to, you know, do things like pay for their their cars on the company business, um, profits and so on, they end up only paying eight, or just under $19,000 in tax on a $230,000 profit. Now, that's not illegal. They're not doing mm. anything illegal, but that's the impact of those tax loopholes when they're really used aggressively. Um, now, under Labor's tax plan, that would only come down by about $5,000 because they're not... They, if they're an existing couple with an existing investment property, that wouldn't affect them, the negative gearing changes. But in future, a couple that was, um, you know, operating in a similar way, um, Labor's policies would save if, if you know you talked about someone that in 10 years time buys an investment property but can't negatively gear it then compared to that $18,000 on 230 grand that the couple's paying today they'd end up paying more like 34 under labor now they've still got a profit of nearly $200,000 a year mm, they're not crying yeah. poor but that's money that goes into our commonwealth to, to fund service for all of us and I think this is a really smart way to raise revenue to f pay for services and um you know Tax reform's hard. Every, it's very easy, as we've seen, to run a scare campaign on tax reform. But I think uh, Labor deserves some credit for being quite bold at this election. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, they are very bold. And they are um, leaning slightly more towards social democratic principles this election compared to previous elections. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is quite a bold social democratic agenda. Uh, I think those of us that are engaged as we are at Per Capita in, in trying to, to advocate for policies that look after uh, those at the bottom of the pile and see a more equal society are quite, you know, we're quite pleased to see this. Um, I've been, you know, in, I've worked for the Labor Party in the past, but I've also been critical of some of their uh, less progressive policies. Mm. And, and it's quite heartening to see them take a package like this to, a, to an election. And they're being upfront about it and mm. saying, this is what we're going to do. You know exactly what you're going to get if you vote for us. Um, and I know you've, you know, talked about Rebecca Huntley's uh, most recent quarterly essay here recently. And we do our annual tax survey every year and find the same thing Thing Rebecca found, which is the majority of Australians want to see more spending on public services and they believe that it should be funded by the wealthy paying more of their fair share and by big business paying more of their fair share. And I think, you know, Labor's also got a policy to track, crack, crack down on multinational tax avoidance and that's going to be very important as well mm. in the future to sustain our budget revenue to pay for the things that we all need as a, as a fair society. Yes, exactly. And in this example that you have of Hugh and Angela, mm. you do highlight also that there are changes to um, discretionary trust distributions. Yes. Yeah. 
So that's something that Labor announced after our um, policy, after our paper on the cost of privilege came out last year. And we're not going to claim credit for that, but we'd like to think, you know, that we we help shift the narrative a little bit. But I think people don't realise how trusts can be used, and they're almost only used. Our, our research last year found that only the top fifth of income earners are wealthy enough to make it worthwhile using a trust. Mm. And they do it by saying, okay, well, the the husband's income, it's usually the husband, we live in a patriarchal world, uh, the, the primary breadwinner's income can be split between himself, his partner and their children so that they each pay, they each bring their individual tax um, taxable income down and pay less tax. Um, trust systems can be very complicated and they mm. are used really to primarily to minimise tax paid. Uh, so Labor said that they're going to, you know, make changes there. They're not abolishing trusts. Um, they are still, you know, certainly very useful, particularly in um, farming, uh, some small businesses. But they're going to stop that kind of egregious tax avoidance that means that the people earning well over $200 thousand dollars are paying the same tax as someone on 45 grand a year yeah and so well it is really heartening actually to see that because Mm. i think not a lot of people even know what trusts are and how they work as you said because they're used by such a small and very well-off portion of australia's society yes so again if you don't know what a trust is then you've no reason to be afraid of this policy because you're probably (laughs) never going to benefit from it exactly but you will benefit from the change because there'll be more money to fund schools and hospitals Mm. and if you don't get a tax from franking credits in the mail then you're not affected exactly so or even if you do, but you're a pensioner or part pensioner, you're still not affected. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, the, the, the lower end of income earners, mm. some who don't earn any income and yep. also those who are earning very low incomes. Yep. Now, Labor in its budget reply announced a difference in terms mm. of the tax treatment that people on low incomes would receive. Mm. And there is a difference between mm. Labor and the Liberals on this. Yeah, there's a slight difference there. So we also in our report last week... Um, meet the taxpayers, we, we had, had a look at what the tax cuts announced by both parties would do. Um, and I think it's important to note here that what the Coalition is proposing by abolishing the 37% tax bracket, bracket and reducing the 32.5% tax bracket to 30% is a massive flattening of our progressive income tax system. Um, and that actually will exacerbate inequality. So we had a look at a someone on a more or less the minimum wage, uh, we called her Sarah, and she earns $38,000 a year. Um, um, under uh, Labor, she gets uh, a $551 tax cut and under the Coalition, she will get a $379 tax cut. Now, the difference isn't huge, but to somebody, uh, you know, only bringing home about 600 bucks a week, it's, a, it's enough of a difference. But the really critical thing is under the Coalition's tax cut um, plan... Someone earning $180,000 a year under Labor will get a $674 tax cut, but under the Coalition they'll get $8,639 a year uh, compared to $379 for someone on 38 grand. So, again, we made up these scenarios, but they're based on real-life examples, and I think the argument most people would say is why does someone on $180,000 a year need $8,500 more in a tax cut Mm. when someone earning minimum wage is going to get less than $400. It's inherently unfair. Um, Under the Labor plan, the person on 
180000 still gets more than the person on 38. That's the nature of progressive taxation. Mm. Um, but it's a much it's a much fairer outcome for low-income people. Yeah, and people have really talked about the fact that the coalition is flattening the tax yes. income tax yes. system, really. Yeah, so anyone... And, and it's, again, people often don't understand that the the marginal tax rates and, and how they work. So the current currently the top tax rate is 45 cents in the dollar. That applies to any income you earn over $180,000. So not, not your entire income's taxed at that rate. Mm. What the coalition's doing is saying that in future... Anyone earning between $45,000 and $200,000 a year will pay the same marginal tax rate. Um, So someone earning up to $200,000 will still pay more than someone on $45,000, but a lot less than they're currently paying. And the Mm. overall cost of that to the budget has been calculated by various independent experts. It's been fact-checked by the ABC Mm. as well in excess of $80 billion. Now, that's $80 billion they're taking out of the budget that's there today. It's not not money that that they're recovering or Mm. or not recovering. It's money that exists in our system today that they are removing to hand back to high income earners. So that's 80 billion plus that's not available for Medicare, that's not available for public schools, that's not available for aged care or childcare. And that will have a massive impact on, on rising inequality in this country. It's essentially taking money that currently is there for all of us and putting it in the pockets of people who are already very wealthy. And that can only be bad for equality in Australia. Yes, and as Bill Shorten said, this is an election about choices. Yep. Labor has more choices in terms of where it spends money because mm. their pie is a lot larger yeah. and it's because of the very reason you've just said, Labor is closing tax loopholes and concessions for mm. a very small portion of well-off people and the Liberals are giving away yeah. tax refunds to very high income earners that are in stark contrast That's with right. the Labor Party's policy. It's a, it's a really stark choice for the first time in a long time. You know, we've heard for a long time, oh, there's no difference between the major parties. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It matters at this election. It mm. matters. It's a choice that Australians have to make. Do we believe that wealthy people should be able to keep their wealth to themselves or do we inherently believe in a social democratic society where we all pay what we can afford to make life better for everyone? I would note that the the most disappointing thing for us of course is that neither party has a policy for the poorest Australians or a really active policy to lift the income, uh, the rate of new start and and disability support payments and youth allowance and they're the people really doing it tough. I am, you know, hopeful that Labor's policy to review the rate of new start, Bill Shorten said he's not reviewing it to decrease it Mm. so there is you know there is a commitment there that they will increase it but we don't know by how much and we don't know how long that's going to take and so I would hope that should Labor win this election that that review will be quick and that they will make that announcement quickly and it'll be a meaningful change because those are the people really living in poverty in our country yeah I'm also pleased to see that he's uh, said recently that 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 review will also look at the system of employment services, which is something we've been encouraging them to do for some time. We've done a lot of work on that at per capita. Um, so that's a good thing coming mm. out of that review, but we need we need that lift in the rate of new start really quickly. People are, people are really suffering. Yeah. Emma, I very much appreciate how you've just taken us through some of the most important elements of the differences between the two parties. We're going to have to finish yep. it there, but <laughs> I will link to some of this information from per capita yeah. so that if people want more 
depth yeah, and think, understanding. You know, we tried to set it out in a really simple way. You yeah. can see from those snapshots who's getting what out of the competing policies and you can make a choice. You mm. know, maybe some people are obviously going to vote um, for a party that's going to give them a tax cut if they're high income earners. That's entirely the democratic way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can see it all on our website. We've tried to make it pretty understandable. Thank you so much for the great work that Per Capita does. Thank you, Amy. We love your work too. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with the fabulous Emma Dawson, who's the Executive Director of Per Capita. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.